Welcome to the Awareness Offerings Podcast, a weekly offering of yoga philosophy discussion and guided meditation for the moments we're living in. I'm your host, Laura Tara Davy Joplin. I'm a yoga and meditation teacher, spiritual social media strategist, and integrative counselor, working to integrate the principles of the spiritual path into every aspect of my work and my life. This podcast is an extension of that work as I navigate the world as a white woman devotee of yoga, living at many intersections of privilege, living in the West, and trying to live with awareness. Thank you for joining me in this work. You're listening to episode 56, Practicing People First. Hello, welcome. Happy to be back with you this week. Just me this week. Just our t- typical format of me talking into a microphone and then leading some practice. And this week's episode is a special one. It's one I've been wanting to record for a while. I've had it in my notes app as a potential episode for several months at least. But now I feel like I'm in a good position to to do it. So here we go. Before we get all the way into the episode, as always, things you can do to support this podcast, if you feel called, like, or like, this isn't YouTube, um, <laughs> leave a review and or a rating or subscribe, or all of them on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast, sharing on social media or by word of mouth. All of those things just help other people find the show, and I am deeply appreciative of that. And as always, just deeply appreciative that we get to share this space and that you are here listening. So thank you, and let us practice to start. Let's get into our opening practice that we share at the beginning of most Awareness Offerings episodes, singing the sound of OM together. Om is the sound of consciousness. It is said to be the sound of the universe. So essentially by singing it out loud, whether you sing it out loud or not, because listening is also a practice, but by engaging with this sound, we are asking for that kind of depth and expansiveness to be the basis of our practice and our shared space here. So like I said, you can do that by singing it out loud with me, or you can just listen as a practice. If you're coming along, you might just get your body into a comfortable position. You might choose to close your eyes or take a soft gaze by looking down the tip of your nose or toward the floor, just focusing a little more awareness inwardly than outwardly for a moment. You might take a deep breath in through your nose if nostril breath is accessible right now. And then let's exhale through the nose, just clearing some space for a moment. And then we'll take an inhale for the sound of om. Thank you for joining me in that practice. And now for this week's discussion. This week, we're talking about the concept of person first language person-first language. And like I said, this is something I have been wanting to share about and explore on this podcast for a while. The, the topic has been on a list of potential topics for quite some time. And this week feels like the time to do it for a couple reasons. One, because 
This isn't a week where I have this pressing topic that's been on my mind for a few days that I know is aligned for this week. Um, there's not anything going on globally that I feel my voice needs to contribute to. That's not to say there's not anything going on globally. There is so much going on this week, uh, 9-15, uh, September 15th, 2022. The week of that day <laughs> is when I'm recording this, and there's plenty going on, but I am not qualified or I don't have the lived experience to to dive deep into those things and so there was nothing pressing on my mind heart or in the world that I felt qualified to speak about so this felt like a good time to revisit some topics I had sort of laid out for myself that I would like to speak about and this is one of them person first language and I have just started my final clinical internship uh, for graduate school I'm getting a master's degree in clinical social work I am set to graduate on December 9th of this year it's getting close and I am kind of back in the space of practicing and offering mental health services in a deeper, more robust, um, more layered way. It's not to say it's not always robust and deep and layered, um, but I'm really, really in the thick of it now. And so I'm thinking a lot about these concepts again, these these skills that I've been taught on how to, you know, engage with people in a way that is that is helpful and therapeutic and ethical and all those things. And so this feels like a good time to talk about one of the skills and practices that we are taught um, as social workers in training, which is person first language. So that was my first encounter with person first language. I don't think it was the first actually, that might've been a fib because I'm sure I have, or, or I had heard that phrase before because it's, it's actually, it's been around at least since the sixties and it's, been gaining more awareness in our cultural discourse uh, as of late. And so I'm sure I'd heard it before, but my first real in-depth engagement with the idea of person-first language has come from social work training because it's one of the skills that we are taught to use. To refer to a person with any kind of condition or experience or identity as a person with that experience or condition or identity rather than for example saying an autistic person a person with autism rather than saying a depressed person a person with depression that's a skill that we're taught to use both to speak to clients that we're offering mental health services to and to speak about them and just to think about them to train our own minds to always see the person first so it is a therapeutic skill. It's, that's, that's been my primary engagement with it. But it's also just a compassion skill for, for human beings in any realm of life to engage with ourselves, each other, and the world with more compassion and awareness. And I also believe that it is a yoga practice. It is a consciousness practice. It is a spiritual practice to practice using person-first language. And that's kind of the premise of this podcast, as you know if you've been listening to it, that all of these different you know, skills and ideas and ways of being that the that come up in, in life and in my own work and in the world can be looked at as yoga practices, can be related to the philosophy of yoga. And I feel the very same about person-first language. So first I'm going to talk a little bit about what it is. I'll give you a little primer on the history from what I've learned in my own research. 
we'll talk a little bit about ways to apply it, um, especially in the realm of like my experience in, in mental health services and in the world. And then we'll talk a little bit more about why and how it's a spiritual practice. So like I said briefly earlier, oops, dropped a pen, might've heard it. Um, like I said briefly a few minutes ago, person first language is the practice of referring to any condition or experience or identity that a person holds or is experiencing as just that always referring to the person first. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory intentionally centering the human being before we talk about what they're experiencing or what they're going through. And the idea is that it helps us to remember that no person is defined by any one condition, identity, or experience. No person is defined by any one condition, identity, or experience. So we are constantly centering the fact that if I'm speaking to, you know, a client who is seeking mental health services, what who's in front of me is a person. First and foremost, this is a human and I am going to center and prioritize their humanity above all else. And it it works in the world too, right? One of the the greatest gifts of my exploration of the field of social work is it has taught me so many skills that help me to be a more compassionate and aware and full human being. And so we can apply this mindset outside of any kind of clinical setting. Absolutely. Right. There are times when, you know, things we do in a clinical setting don't need to be applied out in the world, right? There is a sense in a helping relationship, which is one way of talking about the relationship between a therapist, a practitioner, and their client. Um, There is always a sense that the practitioner is essentially a mirror, is a space holder, and the interaction is not about them in any sense. And if I transferred that skill into the world, I would be depleted all the time because no one would be holding space for me and I wouldn't have any space for myself. So there's not every single therapeutic skill needs to or can be or should be you know, um, applied in the world, but person-first language is absolutely one that can and should be applied because the same thing goes. If I am speaking to someone you know, as a, if I'm speaking to a friend or a colleague or just someone I've just met, thinking with person first language and speaking with person first language always centers the fact that who is in front of us is a human, a whole person first. Their humanity is always top priority. And this also applies when we're speaking about people, even if, you know, say we're talking about, you know, people with disabilities. And and the way I phrase that is an example of person first language, but we're not speaking to someone who has a a disability or, um, you know, a, a visible disability that we know of. Even if those people are not in the room, I almost find it more compassionate to continue to use person first language, even when we're not just doing it because those people are in front of us to orient ourselves toward the humanity of other people all the time, constantly, even if we're not directly in front of them, because that just generates this, this habit of, of prioritizing humanity and wholeness and compassion. 
So that is my take on, on what person first language is and what it means and how it can be applied. Now I'm going to share a little bit about the history of person first language. And much of what I'm sharing here comes from People First West Virginia, the West Virginia chapter of the People First movement, because it is indeed a movement. That is where this concept comes from. The People First movement, which is a kind of an offshoot or a part of the self-advocacy movement. And according to People First West Virginia, the self-advocacy movement began in Sweden in 1968, and then it began to spread kind of to other countries. And it began as, you know, meetings of parents of people with disabilities, you know, having coming together to um, the, in its first iteration, these people were coming together to essentially speak for people who couldn't quote unquote speak for themselves. And already I say quote unquote, because I'm assuming we can, we can see and feel and hear how that's problematic. That does not center humanity because it's based on the assumption that people with disabilities cannot speak for themselves. Um, that just because they may not communicate in a way that is streamlined and normalized, that they cannot communicate and they do not have a voice or that kind of humanity. And so from this first iteration of these meetings, the actual folks with disabilities kind of began to center themselves and say, no, we're going to begin to speak for ourselves and come together and share friendship and ideas and community. And that's how these, these self-advocacy meetings and this self-advocacy movement began. So it began in Sweden and then it began to, then it began to spread to other countries like England and Canada and then by the 70s, it made its way to the U.S. And uh, People First West Virginia credits Salem, Oregon as the first place in the United States um, that the People First movement reached. And in 1974, there was a movement to organize a convention where people with disabilities could come together and again, advocate for themselves and speak and share and connect. So this meeting happened and one of the central themes that came up during this meeting was people with dis developmental disabilities just saying, I'm tired of being called retarded. And I say that with awareness that, you know, here in 2022, most folks have awareness that that word is, is derogatory and dehumanizing. And here was one of the, the first more recent kind of instances of someone saying, yeah, I'm sick of that. We are people first. I'm tired of being called retarded. We are people first. And that's how the name people first was chosen in the US. And that's how the people first self-advocacy movement began. So this is where this concept originated, at least in modern times, uh, was from folks with developmental disabilities saying, I'm sick of being referred to as my condition, especially by a word that we now know is incredibly dehumanizing, I am a person first. And from this stemmed the idea of person first language. And over the last, you know, 60 something years, this concept has continued to develop and it is now, it's, it's gone from sort of a movement, a grassroots movement of people to an actual therapeutic skill that is taught in institutions like graduate school, like the one that I'm in right now at Florida State University. 
So that's a little bit of the history that I found in my own research of person first language, which stemmed from the person first or the people first movement, which stemmed from the self advocacy movement. And now we'll talk a little bit more about just ways to apply person first language. And we, I, I touched on this a little bit a few minutes ago when I gave some examples to explain my understanding of what person first means. But now I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into just the application of this concept, both in ways I've learned about it in the therapeutic setting and how it has assisted me in my own life, because it really has. So again, as a practitioner, a clinician in training, a mental health professional in training, I sit in front of folks who experience different conditions and folks who have different identities. And one of the more common that I engage with, um, or, or some of the more common conditions that I engage with are things like depression and anxiety. And it's really straightforward and simple and it's a habit of the mind and a habit of our culture to just say I'm depressed or I'm anxious or to say to a person who might be having that experience, you're depressed or you're anxious. And first I want to name, I am not, this is not revolutionary. I'm not saying anything new. Many other folks who work in the field of mental health and even, you know, personal development and personal growth have, have espoused these ideas. So there's nothing new here. This is just sort of in my own words and in my own experience. But if we look at one of those sentences, like I am depressed, like right off the bat, there is an identification. There is you know, we introduce ourselves as I, I am name, you know, I am a blank, like I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm, I am John, I am Jill, right? And so when we say I am, there is an identification with it. And when we start to identify with things, it's really easy for those things to get bigger and for the narrative, the stories, the energy around them to grow until they feel so big that they feel like they take up all the space we have, that they hour our entire experience. And that's a concept that comes from meditation too. And we'll talk more about the spiritual, you know, branch of this concept in a bit. But the idea in meditation where we have thoughts we're going to have thoughts. That's what the human mind is made to do. And the idea is that it helps to not identify with the thoughts. We don't have to have zero thoughts in order to be, you know, have equanimity and peace and be centered and be meditative. We just have to not identify with them. We have to remember that we are not the thoughts. One of my primary, my primary teacher, the master teacher, the guru of my lineage of yoga has said before, you are not your thoughts. So this idea is, is relatively widespread that there's, there's a movement, there's, there's a concept in, in mental health, in personal growth, in spirituality to reduce identification with certain things. And when we're talking about mental health conditions, I feel that com- becomes even more vital because when we say I am depressed, depression is not a pleasant experience. And so when we begin to identify with that experience, we begin to associate ourselves with that sense of unpleasantness, however we might experience it. And that only perpetuates feelings of shame, feelings of not enoughness, which can both be 
you know, manifestations of depression and they can perpetuate depression. So we can, it can get really sticky when we start to identify with what we experience. And that's where person first language might come in, where if I am experiencing depression, I would say I'm experiencing depression or I'm a person with depression. And both of those things are examples of person first language. The second one's a little more obvious because I said I'm a person with depression, but even I am experiencing depression. There is something in between me and the depression. The I am there is separated by the awareness that it's an experience that I'm having. And same goes if I were speaking to or about a client, uh, someone that I would see to offer mental health services, I would say they're a person who is experiencing depression or they are a person with depression. Always centering the awareness that they are a person first. That their humanity is the most important thing about whatever I could say about them. And same thing goes for, as we, you know, we touched on, we touched on people with disabilities, but we could even, we could even apply this to the concept of identities. And this is where it gets a little more complex. Everything is complex. Nothing is black and white. There is nuance to absolutely everything. The only thing that is not nuanced in my mind is the fact that everything is nuanced, right? Um, but it gets complex because when we're talking more about identity, that's when it's completely up to us. We have the agency as we should, as whole people whose humanity is the most important thing. We have the agency to decide whether or not we want to identify fully with our identities. And in some cases, it's a point of, it's a point of pride, it's a point of releasing shame and validating ourselves and celebrating ourselves to completely and fully identify with our identities. But for some folks, it still feels like a reduction of who they are, reducing who they are to one facet to say, for example, you know, I am queer. And I'm going to use that word because I am actually queer. I'm not going to use the, even as an example, I'm not going to use examples that are not identities that I hold myself. Um, So I'm queer. And on the one hand, saying that I am queer, that identification can be beautiful. And it is for me in a lot of ways because that has been a point of, of shame and unworthiness from the ways I've been conditioned um, and things I've learned, you know, as in society. So on the one hand, that identification is beautiful, but I could also decide, and I have the right to, that I don't want to just be seen as a queer person. It's a part of who I am, but it's not, it doesn't define who I am. I am multifaceted. And so with person first language, I could say, I'm a person who's queer. So that's just a few examples of the way that I might look at and use person first language in a clinical setting with myself, speaking about clients, speaking to clients. Now I want to speak a little bit about how this concept has 
assisted me and helped me grow in my life and in my my personal world, even outside of my my work in the mental health space. And the the primary condition that it has helped me grow through this person first language practice is addiction. I have loved someone who has addiction, who even, and even that word is complex. Um, and some folks will even go as far as to, not even as far, it's not as if it's a stretch, but some folks will also say, you know, misusing substances rather than addiction, just because the word addiction carries so much stigma. But either way, I have loved someone who misuses substances and it was one of the, and is, still remains, that person is no longer in my life, um, but it still remains one of the greatest teachings and teachers of my life. And this is not the only person I know who misuses substances. Um, It is a pattern that is in my family line. And so it's not something that is like entirely new to me (laughs) or, or it wasn't just like a one-off thing. It's something that it's a, it's a pattern in the tradition of yoga, in my tradition, um, our deeply rooted, repeated, repetitive patterns are called karma, right? And there's, I I might have to do a whole other episode on what karma means, um, but just like brief overview, um, my understanding from my study and in my lineage of yoga is that karma is not like the boogeyman who's coming to reciprocate whatever you do. So it's like you do a bad thing and then something bad happens to you. That's not exactly what karma means. Karma are, karma is the concept of deeply rooted patterns that we repeat over and over until we decide to do something different. And this can go across lifetimes uh, in according to yoga philosophy so this pattern of of substance misuse or addiction or whatever words might resonate with you is something that is uh karmic in my life um so actually loving and being or attempting to be in a relationship a romantic one with someone who misuses substances was this deep wild foundation shaking experience not only because the actual nature of the experience is huge and and multifaceted complex difficult painful but also because it is in my dna like it is familiar to me in a way that goes beyond just something i've heard about or read about it is in my my spiritual imprint um, because it's in my family line So I loved someone and still do. Let me just say that still do um, with with a lot of a lot of love in my heart um, who, who misuses substances. And I had to learn a lot about compassion, non attachment, grace, surrender, all kinds of stuff <laughs> um, and still am, but, but really acutely was learning about it when I was moving through that experience. Um, and although the relationship, the actual romantic relationship, because um, I will always relate to this person, I will always be connected to this person, um, but the actual um, relationship did not last. Um, I still wanted and needed 
to learn to relate to this person and to myself and to my experience of what was going on with this person and with me and with both of us with compassion. And so person first language came into the, came into the equation because I had to both, you know, so that I could continue to hold this person in love and compassion as best I could, even knowing that it was getting too painful to be up close to them, but so that I could still hold them in compassion, I had to learn to think of them and have my thoughts and energy toward them be that of compassion. And I also had to have that compassion for my, for my own sake so that I could keep my heart open and have compassion left for myself and turn love toward myself. It was just necessary to find a way to relate to this experience with compassion. And as you might be aware, our society does not treat substance use, substance misuse, addiction with compassion, very largely. There is a lot of stigma. There is a lot of shame. There is an assumption that it is a a, a, a character defect. And even language, some language around the experience of substance misuse as an illness um, can, can perpetuate shame. I, and I say that with so much awareness that for some folks who have misused substances, conceptualizing it and understanding it for themselves as an illness has been incredibly helpful. And I want to validate the shit out of that. Yes, I'm just aware that even some of that language that certain people use um, and the idea that it is an illness, a sickness can still perpetuate shame. So all that is to say, society does not treat substance misuse with a lot of compassion. And it is rooted in this idea, this, this long held stigma and concept that it is a moral failing and a character flaw to misuse substances. And I want to note that I'm saying misuse because even to say abuse substances, that word abuse carries stigma. So just compassionate language everywhere is the name of my game. Um, But it's rooted in this idea that it's a moral defect. It's a character flaw. And that is a fundamental example of the way that we are trained to identify people with their experiences and with their conditions, to, to reduce them to that, to, to that piece of their experience. And so person first language is a natural counterbalance to that sense of reductionism, to that stigma, to that shame, to that lack of compassion. Because if I think about the person I love to misuse substances, or I think about anyone who misuses substances, and I, I think about them in terms of person first. So for example, the person I loved is a person with an addiction. Or the person I love is a person with substance use disorder. Or the person I love is a person who misuses substances. If I we think about addiction in those terms, that is naturally the opposite of this very stigmatizing, very shame perpetuating narrative that people are defined by their actions, 
by their conditions, by their experiences, and that addiction itself or substance misuse itself is a moral failing. Saying, I'm going to see you as a person and prioritize your humanity, even in this place of incredible pain, incredible shame, and sometimes incredible destructiveness. Even then, I'm going to see you as a person first and prioritize your humanity. That is a natural antidote to the lack of compassion that society treats addiction with. And so for me, in learning to love and care for myself while trying to love someone with an addiction and learning to kind of navigate and speak about that experience to myself and to other people, especially other people who have gone through this, this same experience and, and kind of were my community I was building and helping me understand that experience, learning to prioritize, continue to prioritize the humanity of the person with the addiction was an incredible teacher of compassion for me. And it kept my heart open and it allowed me to continue to be full of love, which ultimately allowed me to choose healing, allowed me to understand that it was too fucking painful to be right up close to this. And I needed to step away, but I could still prioritize the humanity of that person. And that is a form of love. That is a way I could continue to love that person, which helped me to kind of be able to make the choices that I did, to be able to take care of myself, to be able to to hold my heart. So that is how person-first language really helped in my own healing and in my own life. And that kind of leads me into the fact that person-first language is deeply profound. It's deeply spiritual the word yoga sanskrit word and yoga i choose it because it is my path it is my practice it is what i am devoted to it is the great love of my life as you probably know if you've listened to this podcast so i'm using that word as an example Uh, but the word yoga means to yoke to bring together which some folks will will translate as union the uniting of different pieces and parts which i understand as wholeness Yoga is a practice and a way of being that prioritizes wholeness. And you might be able to see where I'm going with this because wholeness makes space for all parts and it inherently recognizes the fact that we people, humans, are multifaceted. I mean, the entire practice itself is based on that idea given that there are these different branches and types of yoga that deal with our physical body, our breath body, our spiritual body, our energy body, it is predicated on the notion that we have different parts. And so this wholeness makes space for all of who we are without pushing anything away, without shaming or stigmatizing or, you know, burying, repressing anything, but also without over over identifying with anything, without insisting that we are defined by any one part of ourselves. That's what wholeness means. And so to me, it is so intuitive and so straightforward and just a natural progression to say, you know, person first language is a yoga practice. It is a wholeness practice. It is a commitment to recognizing, prioritizing the wholeness of every human more than anything else to 
uplifting the idea of a person's wholeness before we say or assume or speak about anything else about them. Person-first language is a practice of wholeness. And so we can practice person-first language when we're speaking to or about other people, to, to practice prioritizing their wholeness, to opening our hearts to compassion, which are you know, spiritual practices. And we can practice it in how we relate to ourselves too. When we think about our identities or especially our conditions or experiences, um, to think of ourselves as a person first. And there are actual tangible practices we can do for this. Um, my, my colleagues and mentors over at the East Institute, the East Institute, which is an organization for essentially global healing that is, you know, based in both, you know, Eastern embodied practices like um, Buddhist meditation, uh, transpersonal psychology, Tai Chi, Qigong, energy work, but also the use of entheogenic plant medicines. Um, and I work closely with this organization. But my, my, my colleagues and mentors there, one of their primary tools, and it's a tool, it's a, it's a very time-honored tool, um, is the concept of thought objectification. Thought objectification, which is essentially a way to use person-first language for ourselves. And I touched on this a little bit earlier. You'll, you'll, this might be familiar sounding because the idea is that if we are having an experience, stress, anxiety, sadness, rather than speaking about and to ourselves with over identification saying, I am stressed, I am anxious, I am sad. We objectify the thought. The thought becomes the object of the sentence rather than the subject, right? Attached to the I am, the subject of the sentence. So we would say, you know, I am experiencing anxiety. I am experiencing stress. I am experiencing sadness. And again, it's that just single point of separation between the I and the experience that reminds us that we are not that. And that is a, that's a form of person-first language that we can turn toward our own selves. So with that in mind, let's do it. <laughs> let's turn it toward ourselves and let's put all of these really deep, multifaceted, layered, complex um, probably concepts that are, you know, activating something within you. If you're listening to this, I'm not going to say that there, this is for sure, you know, something that feels that touches on something within you, but I think it's pretty likely that it might. So let's move from talking about it into some practice to make sure we are resourced and steady and have the embodied tools to start to start to live this form of compassion. <laughs> So this is the point in the Awareness Offerings podcast where we go into embodied practice. We sit for some meditation. So if you are taking a shower or you're washing your dishes or you're driving your car and you're not in a position to sit in stillness, perhaps with your eyes closed safely or effectively, this might be a moment to pause the podcast and return when you are. If you are ready right now and you're coming along, first thing I'll invite you into is a comfortable seated position. 
And this is where we get to like practice person first embodiment because we want to put our wholeness and humanity first by being really kind to ourselves. So take any seat at all, as long as you can lengthen your spine. Your spine is the central pathway of energy in your body. So when it is long and spacious, energy can move more freely, can create a sense of awareness and connection in a more straightforward way. But you get to find that however you need to. So there is this classical idea of how we might sit for meditation on the ground with our legs crossed. That's valid. If you're going to do that, I would say sit on something like a cushion or a blanket or a towel or a block. You can even put something under your knees for support or get your back against a wall for support. But that is not the only way that you have to or can sit. You can extend your legs or bend your knees. You could sit in a chair or on your bed. Truly put your person first and get a comfortable seat that allows you to lengthen your spine. And then once you find that for yourselves, I'll invite you to perhaps settle into that by closing your eyes or maybe just taking a soft gaze by looking down the tip of your nose or gazing toward the floor. Again, put your person first and choose what works. The idea is that we just dial down the external stimuli so we have more energy to put toward our internal world for this contemplative practice time. And as we move into practice, the first thing you might practice here is breath awareness. There's nothing you have to change about your breath. Nothing you have to do with it right this moment. I'm simply inviting you to witness it, to notice it. Like you would witness a sunset or a beautiful piece of art. Just being aware of what is happening in front of you at this moment so that you can sort of remember that you are also happening at this moment. Breath awareness can act as a starting point for all kinds of awareness. That is what wholeness means, is that one piece can lead to and support another. And so as you cultivate your breath awareness, you might also begin to welcome in other forms of awareness in your meditative practice. You might become aware of your physical experience, what your body feels like right now. Becoming aware of it doesn't mean it has to feel amazing. You just notice what is here. You acknowledge it. Allow space for it. That's part of compassion. Just allowing space for what is and being fully in the experience with ourselves or with another person, depending on what kind of compassion we're practicing. And then you might also begin to experience awareness of the more subtle layers of your experience, emotional experiences, the energy, the kind of the tone of the experience that you're having right now. And of course, you might begin to experience awareness of your thoughts as well, which is another piece of your wholeness. Not something we have to push away 
or shame ourselves for, but also not something we have to identify with. So the thoughts come just as the breath moves in and just as the breath moves out, the thoughts can also go. We have the option to not grab onto them. If it feels difficult to imagine how we might not grab onto thoughts, you can use your mind as a tool. If a thought comes, you say, I'm having this thought, and now the thought goes. Just like the breath comes in and the breath goes out. Just beginning to open to this idea of awareness of the whole self. When we can acknowledge and be with our own wholeness we have the tools to be with the wholeness of others to recognize the humanity in ourselves and other people so beginning to practice whole self-awareness here and just noticing what comes up with space just being willing to be in it there's no change needed there's no fixing needed and that is true compassion it's being in the experience Now, I'll invite you to kind of refine that awareness a little bit to just maybe, if it is a supportive practice for you, to kind of name what you're experiencing right now. To notice if you're experiencing, you know, presence, joy, peace, irritation, discomfort, sadness, anything at all. There's no right or wrong way. Just notice what it is and maybe acknowledging it to you maybe acknowledge it to yourself by naming it. And then once you've named it, practice prioritizing your personhood first by objectifying it. As my mentors have taught me to do. So if you're experiencing sadness, joy, presence, peace, please practice naming it to yourself as such. Rather than I am sad, I am present, I am peaceful, I am experiencing sadness, I am experiencing presence, I am experiencing peace. So that we don't over-identify with anything, but we still manage to be aware, present and whole. And you'll notice even the quote-unquote positive experiences we don't identify with. Because when we over-identify with those, it gets all the more painful when things don't feel so quote-unquote positive anymore. So just, I am experiencing, you fill in the blank. Just prioritizing your wholeness here for a few breaths.
And for our final few breaths in this space, I'm going to invite you into a practice of curiosity. Curiosity can be very spacious rather than tightly constricting us to any one narrative. And space makes room for wholeness. And so here you might get curious for a moment if you are not the things, the thoughts, the experiences, the conditions that you typically identify with, who are you? You don't have to have an answer. The curiosity alone is enough to create space. But if you do, that's awesome. It could be that you are the moment. You might be awareness. You might be energy or love. I do think love is the one thing that it is uh, totally safe to identify with at any point. Just practicing that curiosity for a few breaths. I'll invite you into just a whole breath, a complete fulfilling breath in through your nose and a whole thorough breath out. And as that breath is complete, you might begin to blink your eyes open, taking your time, you know, transitioning your awareness from more fully internal to external as well. But I say as well because it's not instead. Wholeness means we practice maintaining internal awareness even as we move through the world externally. And you might have noticed, and I'm noticing right now, that I offered a lot of different concepts and definitions and examples of what wholeness is throughout this episode. And I just feel aware that, you know, wholeness is everything. <laughs> Meaning that it, it literally is everything that exists and it's everything. Like it is, it is like the highest good, I think. Is just prioritizing wholeness. I think it matters that we do. And I am incredibly, incredibly grateful that we got to explore the prioritization of wholeness together. Thank you for joining me for this awareness offering and for going into embodied practice with me. You can find me on social media at Laura Tara, L-A-U-R-A-T-A-R-A, on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. My intro and outro music was created by none other than my very own brother, Oxella Sun, O-X-E-L-A-S-U-N, whom you can also find on Instagram. <laughs>